Hello, this is Pastor Ryan Brown, and you are listening to the Aroma of Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Let's get started. Scripture reading for this week is Matthew 11, 7 through 19. What we are trying to see interpretively in this passage is to see how John and Jesus are connected. If you reject John, you will also end up rejecting Jesus. And to one sense, this is just obvious. As verse 10 in Matthew 11 indicates, John is the messenger sent to prepare the way for Jesus. If you miss the messenger, you're going to miss the one he is pointing to. But Jesus here, giving high praise to John as being not just a prophet, but more than a prophet, and indeed the greatest born among women, He's showing that the rejection of John will pave the way for a rejection of Jesus as well. And Jesus is then pulling this to a conclusion by pointing out how it's the same rejection of John by saying that he has a demon because he doesn't eat nor drink, and Jesus saying that he's a gluttonous man in the wine bibber because he does eat and drink. And ultimately, wisdom is justified of her children. Wisdom is justified of her deeds because they are the same wisdom producing the same things regardless of the different outcomes. So let us read this chapter. Matthew 11, verse 7 says this. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft clothing? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffering vi- suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath the devil. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. Go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Today we are intending to go from Matthew 13:54 through Matthew 14:12. 
feel like I, I might need these a little bit more than usual today. So I mean, I forgot my suit coat hanging straight up in my bedroom ready to be put on. So if I'm forgetting my clothing, I probably need to make sure to have this ready for me today. Matthew, up to this point, has been showing who Jesus is. And at this point, we as the reader largely know. As we finish the discourse on the parables and enter into this fourth narrative section, we know that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who was anointed. He was the one who has come by the Spirit to bring salvation to all. But within the actual narrative, those who are interacting with Jesus, the Pharisees are rejecting him. The disciples are following him, but seem to have partial understanding. And it seems like we're left with the centurion who understands there must be something deeper. Someone who is under authority is the one who could have this authority. Or the lepers saying, heal us, O son of David. The overall characters, as, as it were, don't recognize who he is. But in this narrative section, that's going to change. And that's going to be one of the main points of this narrative section, is seeing the characters identify who Jesus is for us. And Matthew begins it in Matthew 13, 54, like this. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom? and these mighty works. Father, we thank you that we are here today, that we are gathered around your word, which is the most important thing. Gathered to behold you, to behold your son, and to behold you through your son, all in your word, your revelation to us. We ask that we would not forget your great wonders, that we would not forget the wonderful things you have done to us in salvation, and that you would help us and guide us as we go on here. Help us to see more of who you are and rejoice in it all the more strongly. And so, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you've ever read a book that is focusing in on defining something, or even just has a couple chapters at the beginning of defining something, you might notice that the definitions spend a lot of times first talking about what the thing is not. It's not just here is what the thing is, it's also not this thing over here. We learn about what something is by learning about what it is not. There's an absolutely amazing book by Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert, What is the Mission of the Church, that spends as much time saying what the mission isn't as describing what the mission is, because it's necessary to properly clarify the situation. As Matthew then begins this section here, 
and shows who Jesus is and shows identifications within the narrative of who Jesus is. He starts with two wrong ones. With two ones that more accurately show who he isn't. Which then sets the stage and helps us understand with clarity who he actually is. And the first one is in 1354 to 58. The Nazarenes, the hometown, will identify Jesus for us wrongly. Begins in the first half of verse 54 with the setting. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogues, insomuch that they were astonished. So Jesus was in most likely Capernaum, giving the parables. He was giving all of that speech and that discourse, but now he's left it behind. He's come back to his own country, that is his own homeland, his hometown, which we know Nazareth. If you've spent time away from your hometown, you can know that there's something that's a little nostalgic about returning to it. That it can be restful and a great opportunity then. But this isn't really a nostalgic trip. Jesus doesn't come here just to take a load off and rest. He comes in order to minister. And while we like to romanticize, or at least I have liked in the past to romanticize the fact of growing up with Jesus and having that intimacy with him at that time, the familiarity that the Nazarenes have actually works against them and it breeds contempt, as our expression says. And so they end up with this wrong identification starting the end of verse 54. Insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. So in, in some ways, this response starts fairly promising. We get this understanding that they're astonished. They're amazed. They're hearing Jesus in the synagogues, and they have a right sense of wonder. Like what the crowds had after the Sermon on the Mount, for instance. But here, this sense of wonder quickly leads into skepticism. Because they, they know this Jesus. They, they know some things about him. So as they hear his wisdom and have previously heard of his mighty works, they immediately ask the question, where is this coming from? Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? They're used to him as the hometown boy, as being just one of them. They know he's had no rabbinical training. And indeed, I imagine that for much of his life, they would have actually seen him as beneath them. Because he was born, as was supposed, of sexual immorality. 
Unless you believe the virgin birth as we do, you'd have to look at the situation of him being born to Mary before Joseph and Mary were married as being that of sexual immorality one way or another. And so then they continue to ask, but their questions are just ways of expressing what they already know. Their question is an excuse. As we read the questions in verse 55, we should know that they are expecting them to be positive answers. And so this is their identification of Jesus for us. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Who is this man, they wonder? This son of a mere carpenter. This son of Mary. This brother of those we know. Both his sisters who are still with us and James and Joseph, Simon and Judas. Where have then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. They are stumbling at him. They're scandalized at his existence and his wisdom that he has. Because he's just one of them. If Jesus has said in Matthew eleven six that blessed is the one who is not offended in me, they are cutting themselves off from that blessing by being offended, by wondering where these things could possibly come from without ever providing any answer. And so then Jesus responds, But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country, and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Jesus responds first with the proverb, this idea, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. For most people, I think we'd be fair to say that you would be most respected, most esteemed in your own house among people who actually know you and your character. But with anyone of any sort of renown or fame, the reverse becomes true. They know how you grew up. They knew how you played outside. They've seen you before you had any reason for renown. And so they don't esteem you the same way. And so Jesus says, one who is renowned like a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. 
the most immediate outcome in which they've cut themselves out from the blessing of Christ by being offended in him is not being able to receive the benefit of his miracles. They've heard of it with their ear and can ask where it comes from, but they don't get to see it with their eyes or receive the benefit themselves because they are offended in him. And before we move on to chapter 14, we ought to make some implications and think about some of the ways that Matthew has structured this. And the first thing I really want us to observe is that Jesus is indeed amazing. They ask where these powers came from because they know him to be the carpenter's son. But we know him not to be the son of a carpenter at all. Joseph was given a dream in which he said, where he was told that Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That Jesus eternally is God's Son and in human form is again God's Son begotten of the Spirit. And so his authority, the answer to where this wisdom comes from, is indeed answered according to who his Father is. It's answered according to the fact that his Father is God. As we talked about the centurion, he was right. Jesus has authority to speak from a distance and heal precisely because he is under the authority of the Father who has invested authority to him to do as he wills. It is also significant to see reminding and see examples of how what we believe about Jesus determines what benefit we receive from him. Blessed are those who are not offended in him. And we have much higher stakes than what happens in verse 58. The immediate outcome for the people of Nazareth is that they don't get to see many mighty works. But the outcome for failure to identify him properly and to properly respond to him then with faith and repentance would be as with the parable of the weeds or the parable of the net cast into a burning fire where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, separated from God's presence forever, not able to come and be with him in the end. So as we look at this today, let us who have been redeemed remember how much we have been saved from by this amazing Jesus, Son of God. And if you haven't, Let today be the day in which you properly understand who Jesus is and come to him who has died to bear your sin, has died to grant you eternal life. The last interesting thing is that there's structural points here. We had a reference to the uh, family of Jesus right before the parable's discourse. And so it's as if we're now continuing on with that same type of narrative. That as Jesus before said that his true family and his true allegiance was to those who obeyed the Father. So now he continues on, pointing out the lack of benefit to those who falsely identify and thus do not fully obey. 
But it's also significant that there is one question repeated twice here that becomes then the rallying cry for this whole narrative. From where does this man have this wisdom and these mighty works? Which then leads us into our second identification. The Nazarenes will tell us that Jesus is the son of a carpenter, but Herod is going to tell us something else. And his identification actually comes pretty quickly. Chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. And therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. So this is a, a different Herod from in chapter 2, or well, either of the ones mentioned in Matthew 2. But it's the same type of idea of a Roman-appointed governor who could even be called a king. And he's sitting, he's reigning, but he hears of the fame of Jesus. And as he hears of the fame of Jesus, he comes to think, who is this Jesus then? <laughs> he also wants to know where do these mighty miracles come from? And he has an answer. He says, this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now if we turn back to Matthew chapter 3, we can clearly see that Jesus is not John the Baptist raised from the dead because John baptized Jesus. They were clearly alive at the same time. And indeed, as we've already read in Matthew 11, John the Baptist paves the way for Jesus and points to him as one greater than himself. But I also think we should be a little bit easier on Herod here. There is a beautiful thing about how Jesus' public ministry didn't actually start until John was imprisoned, and thus John's ministry had ended, or at least his public ministry had ended. And Herod is also right to realize the connection between John and Jesus. John prepares the way for Jesus. If you get one right, you would get the other right as well. But perhaps the biggest question we'd have reading chapters 14, 1 and 2 at this point in Matthew is to wonder when John died. Risen from the dead? In chapter 4, verse 12, we've seen that John the Baptist was imprisoned. In chapter 11, verse 2, it's been said again. But this is the first time that we're hearing about John dying, which then leads into this excursus, this little other narrative and background for this identification of why Herod would say that he had risen from the dead. Verses 3 through 5 say this. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him, and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, 
He feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. So in verse 3, we're told for the third time in Matthew's gospel that John was put in prison, but here we're given color as to how and why. Herod took him, took hold of him, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, perhaps even because Herodias told him. But regardless, he looks in this reality and puts John in prison because John kept saying, it is not lawful for you to have Herodias, your brother Philip's wife, as your own. And on one level, it's clear that that's not right because it's simply adultery. Both Herod and Herodias were married at this time. But even if they weren't married, even if they were widowed, it would still be improper according to Levitical law, too close in relationship to one another. And so John kept saying the painful truth to Herod, it is not lawful for thee to have her. You shouldn't be doing this. And Herod doesn't like it. Charles Spurgeon accurately says that Herod could bear to do the deed, but could not bear to be told that he had committed an unlawful act. And so Herod adds the sin of vengeance to a sin of adultery and would have added the sin of murder if it weren't for his sin of the fear of man. The people considered him to be a prophet, and the people are right. He's in fact more than a prophet. But because the people consider him to be a prophet, Herod's hand is stayed for now. In verses 6 through 8. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she, being before instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. Herod has a birthday, and he throws a festival. He throws a feast. It's a little bit of a celebration. And at this feast, the daughter of Herodias dances before him and his guests. Matthew doesn't tell us how she dances, but however it was, it pleased Herod such that he made a rash vow. He vowed that he would give to her whatever she asked. Now, there are vows like this at other points in Scripture. Famously, I think of the book of Esther, in which the king twice tells Esther that he would give her whatever she wanted unto half the kingdom. But here, Herod gives no such qualification and essentially writes a blank check to Herodias' daughter, saying, tell me what you want, and I will give it to you. And Herodias seizes the opportunity. She uses her daughter as a pawn in her scheme. And she asks 
Herodias asks her daughter to ask for John the Baptist's head in a charger. And so her daughter does. And in one sense, there's no drama or tension in this moment because we know John has died. But another sense, as this little sub-narrative comes to a climax, we wonder, will Herod overcome his sin of the fear of man in order to do the sin of murder? Is he prepared to do that and kill John? And so we read in verses 9 through 12. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When the king hears this, he is sorry. He was sorrowful and grieved. Given the reality of verse 5 that he wanted to kill John, it doesn't seem that he's grieved that John is going to die, but is still fearful of the people and what they would do to him if he killed their prophet. But verse 9 continues, Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. This vile man, who's only not killed John because of fear of man, it seems now is only killing John because of fear of man. Yes, he made an oath, but it's not just because of the oath, but also for those who sat with him and heard the oath that he commands that it be done. As one commentator notes, like most weak men, Herod feared to be thought weak. And so he goes and commands that John be beheaded in the prison. And he is. And his head is brought out, put on a charger, and it's brought to Herodias. And Herodias then has this little moment of temporary victory. And then John's disciples come. They bury the body. They tell it to Jesus. And so this narrative that began with Herod hearing of Jesus now finishes with Jesus hearing of Herod. And we see this senseless and tragic end of the greatest born among women. Killed simply because of the sin and vileness of Herod and Herodias. It becomes even more senseless with the complete lack of trial, being beheaded in prison, no due process whatsoever. And it leaves a sour taste in the mouth. And it should. And it still leaves us with the question of why Matthew told us this and why Matthew told us this here.
in one sense, I think we could just fairly say that the Herodians, they illustrate for us what it looks like to be a false wheat or a bad fish. Coexisting with the true wheat and the good fish until the time of the end, and in this instance, even prospering, getting what it looks like they would want, and yet despite their temporary victory, their prosperity, unless they repented at some point, would end in a moment. We also get a more reminder of what Matthew has told us through the words of Jesus again and again. That being in the right does not guarantee prosperity. In fact, it guarantees persecution. Matthew chapter 10, verse 25. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Or even in the parable of the the sower, one of the soils faces persecution and then falls away. Matthew 13, verses 20 to 21. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it, yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. John is senselessly killed. And though it is tragic and senseless, we still have to say with Jesus, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. John, though senselessly killed, is still blessed, was still blessed. And so too, we must gladly accept the persecution that comes our way, knowing it does mark us as being blessed by God, regardless of the ridicule or worse that we may receive because of our confession, because of a bold and faithful proclamation of the truth. One of the most important things has a little to do with John or Herod. The only thing that we have commended Herod for in this sermon is that he noted the connection between Jesus and John. And if you understood John right, you would understand Jesus right. We see that, as we've pointed out a little bit, in the beginning of, John's minist- of Jesus' ministry being at the end of John's public ministry. We've seen that in that it's directly said that he prepared the way for him. But it's not entirely the end of the story. There is further things and the connection between Jesus and John. R.T. France in his commentary writes this, Just as Jesus continues, and I would add, fulfills and finishes, the mission and authority of John, so he will share his fate of unjust execution. 
In that sense, this pericope, or that is this narrative unit, is not just a flashback, but also a foreshadowing of what is to happen to the second John. And here at the beginning of this narrative section from 1354 to the end of chapter 17, this is perfectly placed. Because this idea that is primarily being developed about the people around Jesus recognizing who he is come to its climax in Peter's confession in Matthew 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then there's still a chapter and a half left before the ecclesiological or the discourse on the church. And that is spent looking at the implications of that identification for Jesus, which is that he will suffer. It indeed includes three predictions of his suffering starting first right after that climactic scene where Peter makes that identification, and including in the transfiguration account, this in Matthew 17, um, verses 11 through 13. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias shall truly come first and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. The senseless and tragic killing of John the Baptist is a foreshadowing of the senseless and tragic killing of the Son of Man, the Son of God. Killed without due process, without a fair trial. Killed in a manner that is unseemly and arguably illegal by Jewish law. When we think about the benefits that is received in proper identification of Jesus, it ultimately comes through Jesus' death in this unjust, vile way. That we, as though as vile as the Herodians, can live through him. So though we deserve death, that's not the end of the story for any Christian. we think about who Jesus isn't and it helps us to think about who Jesus is come and accept this Jesus who is not a son of a carpenter but the son of God and is not a resurrected John but a greater than John one who is the Messiah to come who will suffer like John but for the sins of the whole world bearing what I should have borne bearing what you should have borne bearing the punishment we all deserve and then will be raised from the dead forever to reign and has been raised from the dead to ever to reign from this perspective. Come and accept him. Come and learn more about him. Talk to me. Ask me about it. Ask anyone about it and come and see him. And let us then come together and rejoice in this high and lifted up one who has become the lowly and gentle one to bear the sins of the whole world, 
to give us the opportunity to stand here blessed and rejoiced and rejoicing. Father, may we know that to be true, and may we count it blessed to be known by you. And as we continue to worship in song, and as we think about then the, the sufferings that do come to those who are in the right, may we indeed know that it is well because of who you are and that we own and know you. Guide us, Lord, in your counsel. Bring us to rejoice evermore in your word. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. For listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Pastoria Baptist Church, do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things?